verses 11 to 22. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. The word of God reads, Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Good. Well, Darlington, thank you very much indeed. And a special thank you to Brenda for testifying this morning. Uh, somebody has said that uh, Christianity does not need more salesmen. What we actually need is more free samples. And that's what's actually happening when somebody comes up here and shares with us what God is doing in their lives. May we have lot, lots more of it. Then just a couple of notices before we begin. Um, immediately after the service, we have uh, our members meeting. So we'll, um, at the end of the service, we'll grab a quick cup of coffee over here and then we'll get started with the members' meeting. Everyone's invited. Um, indeed, I would encourage all of you to stay if you can. It won't be a long meeting, but we are welcoming some new members, and it would be great uh, for you to be part of that. And then uh, next Sunday morning, we've got a special dedication ceremony for young Giovanni over there. And uh, that will be a special time when Gift and Portia will make certain commitments about how they're going to raise him in the training and instruction of the Lord before you as witnesses. Uh, so do please make sure that you're here for that. But now let's have our Bibles open at the passage that Darlington read for us, and um, I'll lead us in a word of prayer.
Well, Lord, we do thank you for the precious gift of prayer. We thank you for what we were able to hear and pray through the children this morning, how special that was. We pray to you now and ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive your life-giving, transforming word. Please, Lord, give clarity to speaker and to hearer alike, and we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. A few years ago, um, a couple of graduate students did a study of behavior in a typical orchestra. Uh, Their research involved interviews with musicians from no less than 11 symphony orchestras. And uh, they focused particularly on how different sections of each orchestra perceived each other. And when they produced their report, uh, it revealed consistent and deeply felt differences. Now, please remember that we're talking about major symphony orchestras here. We are not talking about the music team here at St. Barnabas. But in any event, their study said that in these 11 orchestras, percussionists, that is to say drummers, were generally thought of as insensitive and hard of hearing, but occasionally rather fun-loving. String players were seen as meticulous, but a tendency to pride perhaps emerged from time to time. Brass players were generally considered to be opinionated and brash, well, we don't have any of those. Woodwind players were generally held in the highest regard and were described as quiet and well-prepared, but occasionally a little bit egotistical. Now, the obvious question is, how can an orchestra with such widely different personalities and potentially divisive perceptions of one another ever come together and play beautiful music? How can that ever happen? And the answer is simple. Because regardless of how musicians in an orchestra may feel about one another, when it comes to performing, they subordinate their feelings and prejudices to the leadership of the conductor. Despite their differences, under the direction of the conductor, they can play beautiful music. And as they make music, all of those differences between them are forgotten. Now that is actually the idea behind Paul's description of a New Testament church in our passage this morning. Uh, You'll remember from our first study that at the end of human history, God is going to bring all things together under the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's chapter 1, verse 10. We don't know when that's going to be, But quite obviously, it hasn't happened yet. In the meantime, God's design is that that future event should be reflected in the life of a local church today. Because the picture that Paul is painting in Ephesians is that wherever the gospel is preached, God is calling people from widely different cultural and economic backgrounds into an attractive countercultural family of people who love one another, 
and who submit to the rule of Christ in their lives. Now, friends, can I say that that is what it means to be God's workmanship? That's what it means to be God's masterpiece. Yes, we are his masterpiece individually, but it is this collective picture, this collective community picture, that is actually what Paul is driving for in the letter. But having said that, of course, humanly speaking, there's so much against it, isn't there? Uh, Practically, uh, there are differences of language and education and culture. And emotionally, of course, we've all had different experiences in our past lives. We have different interests, different fears, and different expectations. And so, with so much that might actually pull us apart, how can we possibly become God's masterpiece, demonstrating the unity and the harmony that God has told us that he is going to bring in on the last day. Well, our passage this morning shows us the way. And in this text, Paul says that there's something for us to remember. He says there's something for us to celebrate. And he says there's something for us to embrace. So the first lesson for us this morning is... Remember what you were. Remember what you were. And we're looking here at verses 11 to 13. Now, if we called a meeting to form a new society or a new association, almost the first thing that we would do is to hold a meeting in order to plan the future. Uh, We would want to agree our objectives and discuss how we might work together to achieve them. And there'd be lots of carefully reasoned discussion about that. So I think it's very striking that as Paul casts this marvellous vision for a united church, there is no conference to discuss how we're all going to get along together. Instead, Paul starts by saying, remember. Remember your situation before you heard the gospel. He says that in verse 11. He says it again in verse 12. Why does he say that? Well, because we forget. Uh, Throughout the Old Testament, the people of God were locked into a very depressing cycle of receiving God's blessing then immediately forgetting everything God had done for them, then experiencing God's discipline, and then repenting. And round and round they went in that same tedious, repeated cycle. Blessing, forgetting, discipline, repentance. But the root of the problem was always forgetting. And that's why, of course, God laid down special times in the year, like Passover, for example, to help Israel remember all their experiences of God's goodness and his grace in the past. Now, in verses 11 and 12, what Paul is doing is saying that Christians today need the same thing. Now, why is that? Why? Is it because we've got especially bad memories? What is the underlying problem here? 
Well, I think perhaps for some of us, remembering is actually rather painful. We don't want to think, do we, about what we were like before God took hold of us. That's certainly true for me. Uh, It might be true for you as well. Do you remember last week, uh, Paul said that all unbelievers are in bondage to the world, the flesh, and the devil. And quite frankly, we don't want to think what we were like uh, when we were slaves to those things. We want to forget that. But let's be clear that Paul isn't here asking us to relive particular periods of sin. Rather, by getting us to remember how things were then, he's trying to help us to value the spiritual privileges which we enjoy now. And one of the greatest of those is Christian fellowship, our community, our relationships with one another. So he's saying to the Christians at Ephesus, you've heard the gospel. I spent two years explaining it to you at great length. Now that you know it, I want you to look back at your situation before you heard the gospel and to realize what your life was like without it. So notice in verse 12, he lists five crushing disabilities of their former state. Verse 12, Paul says, remember that at that time, in other words, before you heard the gospel, you were separate from Christ. He's saying, think about what I've already said. In chapter 1, I showed you that because you're in Christ, God has given you amazing spiritual blessings. You know who God is. You know what he's doing in the world. You know who you are. You know where you fit in. And then in chapter 2, I showed you, says Paul, that you've been raised with Christ from helpless bondage to sin and death into a completely new life with new possibilities. Now, there was a time when you had none of those things. Please remember that. And then in the rest of verse 12, Paul piles on the other disabilities uh, experienced by every unbeliever. He says, look at it, they are excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. Or as uh, one commentator rather neatly puts it, They are Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, godless. Now that's what all of us were like before Jesus Christ found us. We rebelled against his authority in our lives, and therefore we never really knew what it means to be truly human. And we didn't know what true community is really all about. And we had no hope of being reconciled to God. Now, the reason we forget is because we don't actually want to think of ourselves like that. Isn't that true? But you see, if we don't, we won't see just how privileged we are now. I guess that uh, Russia 
has been uh, on our minds quite a lot this year. During the years of the Cold War, Russia was an atheist state. Uh, Christianity was outlawed, and for 18 years it was ruled by a man called Leonid Brezhnev. Uh, He died in 1982, and uh, at his funeral, his widow did something really rather remarkable. For some moments, she stood standing absolutely still behind his coffin, beside his coffin. And then just as they were about to close the lid, she reached down and she made the sign of the cross on her husband's chest. Now think about that. You know, Moscow, the center of anti-God, atheistic power, there is the wife of the man who had run the whole thing hoping that her husband was wrong. She hoped that there was another life. She hoped that the Christian message was true and that perhaps even now, at this late stage, Jesus might have mercy on her husband. Now let me ask you this. Can you imagine what she must have felt like during those long years when Christianity was banned? No Bible, No teaching, no fellowship with other Christians, no hope. And in the same way, you see, Paul is saying here, remember how hopeless your situation was before you heard the gospel and start valuing your spiritual privileges now and especially your brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's why Paul ends the paragraph in verse 13 by reminding us of what God has done for every Christian. This is what God has done for every Christian without exception, rich or poor, black and white, educated or uneducated. Verse 13, Paul says, But now, in Christ Jesus... You who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Now the emphasis there is on the word you. You were far away, but now you have been brought near. And what's happening there is that Paul is drawing on an Old Testament teaching because God in the Old Testament often spoke about being near to Israel as a community. There was a unique and precious nearness between God and his people. No other nation on earth enjoyed that privilege. And Paul is saying that now that very special nearness to God is the privilege of every Christian. All of us were far off, but God has brought us near to himself in the community of God's people. Now the question is, how has God done that? And that brings us to the second application this morning, which is celebrate what Christ has done. Celebrate what Christ has done. Verses 14 to 18. I guess perhaps the the most elusive dream of the last hundred years or so is world peace. 
Uh, we've been reminded about that a great deal this year, haven't we? Back in uh, 1971, um, a pop star called John Lennon, who some of us knew, uh, many of you perhaps don't, uh, you younger ones, but John Lennon wrote a famous song called Imagine. And the song was kind of John Lennon's suggestion for how we might achieve world peace. And the first verse goes like this, quote, Imagine there's no countries, it isn't hard to do, nothing to kill or die for, and no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. See, John Lennon's message was that if we kind of get rid of all governments, get rid of all religion, that humanity has the power within himself to create a perfectly peaceful society. It's a memorable song. It's a catchy tune. And at the time, it really did capture the world's imagination. It's a great humanitarian dream. But we have to say, don't we, that 51 years later, there's more war, more religious hatred, more terrorism, more domestic violence than ever before. Yes, we, we love John Lennon's idea. It's fantastic. The problem is we just can't put it into practice. Now, the Apostle Paul would say that the reason for that is because we don't actually understand what peace is really all about. Notice, will you, that in this paragraph, he uses the word peace four times. That's what verses 14 to 18 are all about. And he shows us that peace is not an ideal and it's not a process. I mean, sometimes world leaders get together, don't they, to try and thrash out some kind of peace process. But it never seems to work, does it? So what is peace? Uh, can the dictionary help us? Well, my dictionary defines peace as a state of harmony characterized by nonviolence. Sounds marvelous, doesn't it? Well, Paul would disagree with that as well. And he would say both those suggestions are totally inadequate because, listen carefully, peace is a person. In verse 14, Paul says, For Christ himself is our peace. Now, friends, that is a very remarkable statement. It's not simply that Jesus gives peace. Paul says he is peace. In other words, peace is Jesus-shaped. Now, once again, Paul here is drawing on Old Testament teaching, and especially from the book of Isaiah, which describes the promised Messiah as the Prince of Peace. Isaiah 9, verse 6. And Paul, you see, is saying that peace is a personal relationship with the Prince of Peace, the living Lord Jesus. That means two things, says Paul. It means that Jesus has made peace, and it also means that he has and is continuing to preach peace. Think about this with me. First, it means that Christ has made 
peace. Verse 14. For he, that is Christ, he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. Now I think today when we uh, think about the world population, we think of kind of a vast diversity of many, many different races and cultures, thousands of them. And uh, here in South Africa, the, the rainbow nation is, I suppose, a powerful image of that diversity. But you see, we've got to put ourselves back into the thought language and the thought world of the New Testament because in Paul's day, the Jews thought in terms of only two people groups, themselves and everybody else. Everybody who wasn't a Jew was a Gentile. And look in your Bible, verse 14, Paul says there was a dividing wall of hostility between them. Now, what's he talking about? Well, remember, will you, that God had given the law to Israel to show them how to live as his special people. That was the purpose of the law. And what God was looking to achieve by giving the law was that the rest of the world would look at the special relationship between God and Israel and want to be part of it. That was God's design. But what happened was that Israel had twisted that spiritual privilege into a very ugly superiority. And they despised anybody who didn't have it. Now you may think, well, that doesn't happen today. But it does. This is precisely where hatred and division begin today. Uh, God gives us special gifts, uh, talents, strengths, abilities. But is it not true that there is something in the human heart that takes those gifts and elevates them to an absolute value and then looks at everybody who doesn't have them and in our hearts we despise them. In other words, our sinful nature wants to find its identity in what we have which other people don't have. So while God intended that Israel's practice of the law should actually be a source of light and hope for the rest of the world, it actually became a source of pride and of prejudice, a dividing wall of hostility. And that hatred ran so deep in the culture that the Jews actually built a five-foot-high wall all around the temple in Jerusalem. And on that wall, they put inscriptions in Latin and Greek telling the Gentiles, basically, keep out. The uh, Jewish historian Josephus spoke about those inscriptions, and in 1934, a team of archaeologists dug up a couple of them. So we know what they said. Quote, here they are. They said, no foreigner 
may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who's caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. So can you see that this wall was a kind of visible symbol of the hostility between the Jews and everybody else? But in our text, Paul says, Christ made peace. How did he do it? Well, he abolished something and he created something. First, in verse 15, he abolished in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. That's how he destroyed the dividing wall of hostility. Now, immediately, somebody will be thinking, well, hang on, hang on one moment. Elsewhere, Jesus says, he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So it just goes to show you can't trust the Bible, it's full of contradictions. And we reply, hold on. Because Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, and Paul, in our passage this morning, are talking about two different things. Paul is saying that all the ceremonial requirements of the law, including the sacrifices, have all been fulfilled in Christ. They're now redundant. That's why we're not bringing uh, cows and sheep to church on Sunday morning to sacrifice in the church car park. So if you're wondering why we don't have a deacon of sacrifices, it's because we don't actually need one. But in the Sermon on the Mount... Jesus wasn't talking about the ceremonial requirements of the law. He was talking about the moral law. So what about that? What about the Ten Commandments? Do they still apply today? Are they still relevant to us? Yes, they are. But listen carefully. Only as a standard of behavior. They are no longer the basis of salvation, which is what they were in the Old Testament. So we can't actually win or earn our salvation by obedience to God's moral law. Why not? Why not? Because Christ has already obeyed it perfectly on our behalf. And on the cross, he bore the penalty for our failure to keep it. So that, you see, is what Paul means when he says Christ abolished the law. And now, salvation, defined here as peace with God, salvation is through faith in Christ. And it is open to everyone. Everyone's invited. There's no dividing wall of hostility. That's the first thing. Second, also in verse 15, Christ created one new man out of the two. Now, the word man in the original language there literally means humanity. Paul is saying that Christ created a new humanity. And I want to say to you this morning that this is absolutely the key to understanding what the New Testament church is all about. I think it was in the second century that a scholar called Clement of Alexandria said something highly significant. 
He said, we who worship God in a new way as the third race are Christians. And that's telling us, you see, that the first Christians understood that the gospel hadn't simply changed them in one or two superficial ways. They were not sort of Jews or Gentiles during the week and then a bit of Christianity thrown in on Sundays. No, they were a third race. Now, today, many Christians, I I would suggest, think about their relationship with other believers at church in the same way that they think about their friends at the sports club. So at the sports club, um, you might share an interest in tennis or golf or rugby uh, with the other members, but that's all. And uh, when you're not actually playing those sports or watching those sports, you've actually got very little in common with the other members. But friends, when you belong to the same race, the bond is intensely profound. You've got thousands of connections in every area of life. And that is what it means to be a Christian. It means that Christ has recreated you as part of a new race. It means you have a completely new identity you didn't have before. And I want to say to you this morning that your new identity comes first. And everything else that defined you before you became a Christian actually comes second. One of the commentators on this text puts it so well, I want to share it with you. He says that according to this passage, this is what it means to be a Christian. Listen very carefully. Quote, My identity is no longer fixed by my birth, determined by my heritage, or spoiled by my sin, but is renewed, transformed, and reborn by my Saviour's blood. Yes, I have a racial identification, but more than that, I am a Christian. Yes, I have a family name, but more than that, I am a Christian. Yes, I have failed to be all that my God requires, but I am not my sin. I am a Christian, washed in the blood of Christ, and filled with its life through the grace of my Saviour alone. End quote. It's pretty good, isn't it? So so Christ has created a new humanity of very different people whom he has reconciled to one another and reconciled to God through the cross. That is how Christ made peace. But before we move on, please will you notice in verse 17, and this is really important for you students, that having made this peace... He has confirmed it in person. Paul says Christ came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. Now Paul is not there talking about the public ministry of Jesus. 
Because as you know perfectly well, the public ministry of Jesus took place before the cross. But we do remember, don't we, that after Jesus rose from the dead, his first words, his very first words to his disciples were, Peace be with you. Thank you, Victor. And you see, in those four words, what Jesus was doing was explaining the meaning of the cross. If somebody asks you the meaning of the cross this week, you only need four words. Peace be with you. And then Jesus sent the disciples out to tell the world that now anybody can enjoy this peace in their own lives. The way's open. Anybody, anybody can have unrestricted access to God the Father through Christ. But there's something very special going on here. This is what I wanted you students to notice. Because in verse 17, Paul says Jesus preached peace to those who were far away. Now, of course, we know, don't we, that the risen Jesus didn't actually go in person. He sent the apostles out with the gospel. But what Paul is saying here, you see, is that when they spoke, it was Jesus preaching. I think that's wonderfully strengthening. Because it means that whenever we share the gospel with somebody, it really is Jesus making the proclamation of peace through us. And if Jesus goes with us, well, we don't have to be frightened or embarrassed, do we? We can speak with boldness and we can speak with confidence and we can leave the results with him. This is wonderful. But there's even more to it than that because lastly, Paul commands us to embrace our new status. To embrace our new status. Verses 19 to 22. Now we began this morning by thinking about what it takes for an orchestra consisting of very different people. What does it take for them to play beautiful music? And we said, didn't we, that two things must happen. First, when they assemble to perform, the musicians must subordinate their differences and prejudices to the leadership of the conductor. In other words, they they acknowledge an authority that overrides all personal agendas and differences. And uh, I don't know whether Ruby can confirm this for for us afterwards, but I suspect it's probably in the terms and conditions of every musician's contract. Second, and this is, I think, fascinating, when the curtain rises and the performance begins... The beauty of the music is actually all that there is, isn't it? In fact, for the duration of the whole performance, their differences are forgotten. In a sense, those differences actually cease to exist. That is the point that the Apostle Paul is making in the last section this morning. He says, because of what Christ has done, You've been brought into a new world with new privileges. But with those privileges, friends, come very real responsibilities. Come with me to verse 19. Verse 19. 
Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people. So remember, as as unbelievers, we were separated from God's people, but now we've been given citizenship in a new kingdom under the authority of a new king. And that means that we embrace his standards of righteousness and peace. And we leave behind anything that might cause a breach of the peace. Got that clear? But more than that, Paul also says in verse 19 that we are members of God's household. Now think about that. Because it's marvellous to be a citizen, that's one thing, it's one privilege. But to be a child in God's household, well that's something completely different, isn't it? That's teaching us that the church is a family. So we are to treat one another as members of the same family. And then lastly, in verses 20 and 21, Paul says that we are members of the building of God. It's a rather strange imagery, that, isn't it? The teaching of the apostles and prophets is the foundation on which the church is built, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. That means that as Members of God's building, we're living by the authority of God's word. But what does that mean in practice? Now think about this. You see, the individual stones in the building are individual Christians. Please notice in verse 21, Paul says that these stones are being joined together. That is a very important word because it's actually the same word that Paul uses elsewhere to talk about a man and a woman being joined together in marriage. So the implications and the responsibilities, dear brothers and sisters, are extremely serious. Paul is saying that in a New Testament church, God is busy joining us together to build something that is way bigger and more beautiful than the sum of the parts. And it's teaching us that by the power of the Holy Spirit, God is moving us to support one another in prayer, to exercise our God-given gifts for the benefit of each other, to encourage one another, to offer our lives as examples to one another. And you see, that is teaching us what a living church actually looks like. Because that is the kind of church that is filled with God's power. Any church that doesn't look like this has not, is not filled with God's power. It's not. And can you see that it means that each stone, every Christian is intimately connected to all the rest. You know, if you pull one stone or one brick out of the wall, what's it going to do? It's going to cause serious structural damage, isn't it? And it surely grieves the Holy Spirit who's made us his dwelling place. Every stone, every stone is absolutely vital to the resilience 
and to the value of the whole building. Is that not a beautiful picture? See, a living church is totally and utterly different from any other organization on planet Earth. So this week, let's be praying for grace to value what God is doing among us here at St. Barnabas and pray for hearts that are submissive to his will as he carries on joining us together. Well, let's pray for that now. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the diversity of our church family here at St. Barnabas. We're all so different. But you have brought us together and made us one. We are a family. So while our differences remain, differences of culture, language, experience, and much more, Please help us to submit our differences to your sovereign will so that we might be a dwelling in which you are pleased to dwell by your spirit. And we ask it for Christ our Saviour's sake. Amen.